Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Welcome to the moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today is another great episode. Uh, I, I, I am really, really, again, I am really, really blessed to have quality guests come on this program. And I hope that they inspire, that they enlighten, that they make you feel good. Because we know we need to feel good right about now. Uh, as we continue to push through 2024. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's time for a moment of news. Donald Trump must pay $354.9 million in penalties for overstating his net worth to lenders and is banned from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for three years. Trump will also stand trial on criminal charges related to hush money payments after a New York judge set a trial date for March 25th and rejected Trump's request to dismiss the case. Alexei Navalny, a prominent Russian opposition figure, died in a penal colony, drawing international attention and cr critical statements from U.S. leaders like Vice President Kamala Harris, who met with Navalny's wife at the Munich Security Conference. The Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos created by in vitro fertilization are extrauterine children, thereby having legal protection like any other child. Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor in Trump's Georgia election interference case, denied allegations of a conflict of interest due to a past romance with a colleague during a court hearing. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin announced that he will not run for president and is not seeking re-election this year. Special Counsel Robert Hur, who investigated President Joe Biden's handling of classified documents, is set to testify before the House Judiciary Committee on March 12th. Texas is building a military base camp in Eagle Pass near the U.S.-Mexico border 
to deter illegal immigration as part of Governor Greg Abbott's border security efforts. Special counsel David Weiss has indicted Alexander Smirnov, a former FBI informant, for lying about Hunter Biden's business dealings with Burisma Holdings. An independent commission in New York has approved a new congressional map, which experts say provides a slight advantage to Democrats. Charles McGonigal, a former FBI official, was sentenced to 28 months in prison for concealing payments from a former Albanian intelligence officer. Taylor Swift donated $100,000 to the family of Elizabeth Lopez Galvan, who was killed near a Kansas City Chiefs rally. Two men who were wounded themselves have been charged with murder. And Yale University issued an apology for its historical connections to slavery following a research project into its past associations. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a moment of news. All right. And I, I know <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not the best news presenter. Uh, that's why I wanted Grace to do it. But as we stated, Grace is recovering. And uh, I, I ask you to continue to uh, send your thoughts and prayers to her as she's recovering. And trust me, I will be glad when she comes back. Uh, but we're going to, as we said before the segment started, we, we're going to push through uh, and do what we got to do. And uh, speaking about pushing through, it's time for my first guest. And her name is Christina Correga. Christina Correga is an award-winning journalist who is currently the National Criminal Justice Reporter for Capital B and an adjunct professor with the American Journalism Online Graduate Program at New York University. Previously, Christina was a crime and justice reporter for CNN, multimedia reporter for ABC News, news editor of the Queens Daily Eagle and Brooklyn Daily Eagle newspapers, as well as a courts reporter for the New York Daily News and New York Post. During Christina's career, she has covered wrongful conviction cases, thoroughly reported on high-profile trials, and investigated alleged scams in the travel and childcare industries. Christina's professional journalism career began as a freelancer with the Carnassi Courier, and newspaper director for the Greater Ridgewood Youth Council, a nonprofit after-school program in Queens, New York. The New York Association of Black Journalists awarded her first place for 2017's and 2014's Best Spot News, and in 2013 was a finalist for the National Association of Black Journalists, NABJ, Best Single News Story. She has previously served as NYABJ's Vice President of Broadcast. She is also on the board for the Criminal Justice Journalist Organization and is a mentor with Report for America. Christina is a first-generation-born American and was raised in Brooklyn, New York. She graduated from St. John's University, where she majored in journalism and minored in international studies. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Christina Correga. 
All right, Christina Carrega. How you doing, sister? You doing good? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to discuss all these things with you. Well, I'm 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 honored first of all that you had the time to do it cuz you're one of the busiest reporters out there. Um and uh you 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 are very intensive in your work. Very detailed oriented and so um I, I wish that people at the New York Times and others were as detailed as you, but that's a whole nother conversation for another day. Um, So what I like to do with my guests at the beginning is to uh, offer a quote to them. It's either something that they have made, they may have said uh, something that they may have written or something that relates to the work that they're doing. So I, I picked this one out. And it says, reform makes us safer when we actually do the work that the community needs and when we turn away from policies that damage the community. When you hear that quote, what do you, what do you, what do you think? I'm stuck on the part about when we turn away from policies that, um, you know, that affect the community. And it's true because, you know, you can take laws that are written, that's been written decades ago and apply it for every case or you can look at the individual that's involved in said case and look at the statute and say does this even apply in today's standards and go from there to apply the law to that person so yeah that statement is very much how i would love most prosecutor offices across the country all 2300 plus to behave but that's just not the case and that's where i come in to tell these stories so now I mentioned that obviously you're not with the New York Times. You're with Capital B, and you've been with them pretty much since the beginning. So kind of talk about the history of Capital B and what is its mission. Yes. So actually, I made my two-year mark as the Capital B on January 30th of this year. Um, they launched with Lauren and Okoto had this big dream of actually having a newsroom owned and operated by black folks. The journalists are black folks. We're amplifying the voices of black folks. We are giving platforms for scholars and experts and grassroots organizations that give the needs for black folks, um, you know, ways to help them. We're giving them those platforms and we're going to the rural areas. We're talking to folks who are involved in environmental issues, politics. Criminal, um, criminal justice, obviously, politics and health, and we're just attacking it on a national level. It's a small team of us, five of us so far, and we're hoping to grow. And we have newsrooms in Atlanta and Gary that we just, Indiana that we just um, launched. So we're spreading that awareness on a local level as well, where there's news deserts as we consider them. Um, Gary is, I think, our most dire newsroom that we have just launched, considering it's close to um, Chicago but they don't even have a local um, news station to tell them what's going on around the corner. And that's the problem. And that's where capital B comes in. Yeah. And that's absolutely amazing considering that's the hometown of the Jacksons. Uh, it, it, you know, one of the first prominent black mayors uh, in America, Richard Hatcher was there. They, they, they actually, I think had a, a national black com- political convention in Gary, Indiana during the seventies. And like you said, due to his proximity to Chicago, a lot of times they get Chicago news. But I had a relative that was in politics in East Chicago. 
And he was telling me, you know, a lot of folks don't even know we exist because, you know, they just think, and especially with our name, they just think we're a suburb of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of my close friends is from Hammond. So all those cities are right there together. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 that's really, really needed uh, to have a reliable, timely news source. Um, and there's a sister in Harvey, Illinois, kind of doing the same thing y'all are doing. Um, and so it's, it's, it's refreshing to see these nonprofit strictly about the news organizations developing, uh, Mississippi has a couple, uh, well, I know Mississippi today, I don't know if the Jackson or Mississippi free press is nonprofit now, but, uh, I know Mississippi today was, uh, so in the in in light of that and me highlighting that why do black journalists matter i saw that on a t-shirt you were wearing so that's why i said i might ask that question <laughs> now if there was going to be a quote thrown at me it would have been that one right because i do wear a black um, black journalist matter t-shirt that was actually given out um actually it was a part of a fundraising efforts within the national association of black journalists convention in vegas two years ago um, they saw they sold that shirt and I purchased it because it matters. We matter to be in those newsrooms and going to NABJ um, almost every year since I joined since 2009, I think, and been a part of the local and national chapters in New York and now in the D.C. Baltimore area. Um, just being a part of that organization and just having that type of home to just talk to other black journalists about what's going on in their newsrooms. It's it's humbling for me in my career because I started off in a large newspaper and you know the New York Post, and then I went to the New York Daily News and in between did a stop at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. But while I'm at these large entities that have over hundreds of thousands of circulating newspapers at the time, I go to NABJ and I'm around a bunch of black and brown people and we're talking about news and we're very intelligent individuals who have the talent and I go back to my newsrooms and I'm the only black woman. And that line of has happened in every newsroom I've worked in until I got to ABC News. So we're talking um, over 10 years of in, in the industry at that time before I saw another black woman in the newsroom with me or even another black woman on the same team or black man on the same team with me. It took that long before I saw that. And even seeing that one other in the room look around, it's still <laughs> just us. And I just never understood why it was that. I feel it might be a, a HR issue. It might be some type of you know blocking still happening because of how long we have been a part of this industry or at least allowed into these newsrooms, um, that we're not seen as having a perspective. And I think we've seen milestones over the years, whether it's the uprising in 2020 or even after Eric Garner to show how black voices in these newsrooms matter because we show that perspective. We cor- correct errors before they become public, mostly. I know I've done it several times at different news organizations. So, yeah, black journalists matter. Yeah, and I, and I see that you're real active with uh, NABJ. Um, I, had a, I had a brief stint uh, with NABJ in, in uh, Jackson. Uh, when I worked for the Mississippi Link, I was like, I think they made me the vice president of print or something. I don't, I don't know. Newspapers, <laughs> wherever. But uh, 
it wasn't it wasn't a long stint and you know it was it was kind of some different dynamics going on so i don't really brag about that but but you know i was a part of the community because um, i worked for both black newspapers uh in jackson so uh i i always want when i can get african-american journalists on the podcast I always want to stress that point about the importance of the black press and all that stuff. But I, but I want to ask you because you seem to have developed a particular niche. So why did you decide to be a criminal justice reporter? How did, how did you go about saying, okay, I'm gonna cover this stuff. I'm giggling for those who can't see because <laughs> it was not my choice. And a lot of journalists, I think, say the same thing. They kind of get just thrown into a topic and they realize, you know what? I actually like how this is going. So um, as I said, I worked at the New York Post straight out of undergrad from St. John's University in Queens, where I did study journalism. And um, I started off as a copy kid, handing out paperwork within the newsroom, but it got me the opportunity to be seen with the editors inside those newsrooms and seeing how a newspaper gets developed. And we're talking about a time that was before digital. So literally printing out pages, handing them out, like really. Um, and while I was there, I became a general news assignment reporter, AKA a permalancer, a permanent, free permanent freelancer, no benefits, getting paid terrible wages. But nonetheless, I did that for three and a half years, doing a bunch of different stories under the under the sun. And then one day I threatened to leave and they were like, oh, no, we have a job for you. It was covering the courts in Queens. Um, and that's how I got thrusted into this beat. But why I stayed in it so long is the more important reasoning why I'm still considered a national criminal justice reporter. It's because I got into journalism because I knew growing up in Brooklyn that stuff was happening in Canarsie where I specifically really got raised and I wouldn't see it on the news. I'd pick up the paper and I didn't know why the cops were at the corner that day. I never knew why, what was happening in my community. And I knew it was because there weren't journalists telling these stories. And I knew I had to be that person, the voice for the voiceless, the voice for communities where there aren't people going to the gunshots in the neighborhoods they consider high crime, quote unquote. And I wasn't afraid to do that. So I became a part of those newsrooms where I would go to the Bronx and I would go to East New York and I would go to Bed-Stuy and Brownsville to cover a case because it was important to tell those stories. And then after covering that general news assignment aspect and being thrown into the courts, I saw the connection of how I could complete those cases I covered in the street in the courtroom and take the case to show the readers how that arrest that happened years ago ended. And then as I was more involved in the justice system, I started realizing how many people really don't understand what's going on behind those walls. Taxpayer funded things, prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, and people around the corner don't know that your, your taxpayer dollars are going towards these people's salaries and you should really care who are the people behind those walls and what they're doing. And I found myself sometimes becoming a defense attorney, doing investigations and helping attorneys out with cases. And it was just so interesting to be involved in something where you can tangibly see the, what, albeit taking years to happen, somebody's name being cleared or seeing an acquittal or seeing justice done correctly. And even covering wrongful convictions has really bolstered my want to stay in this field because it's, showing how the system can be used in the negative and the positive 
but also exposing and explaining those elements to the reader is where I feel I'm needed in this industry. And, and this is true. You are needed, uh, uh, not just in this industry, but in society as a whole. Uh, truth telling is a commodity at <laughs> it, it this it time. Uh, and so uh, I greatly appreciate the work that you're doing. And so I want to highlight some stories that you have covered uh, and kind of get the the podcast listeners up to date on where particular cases are. And I and I, just because of time constraints, I've just highlighted a few. But uh, one in particular, I want you to we're going to start off with dealing with the case of Brittany Watts. Now, that's the young lady that was being charged with um, manslaughter, I guess, or whatever, because she had a miscarriage in Ohio. Is that correct? Abuse of course of corpse was the charge. Okay. All right. Kind of, kind of go into detail about that case and, and how it ended up. Yeah, so Brittany was 22 weeks pregnant when she was experiencing discomfort, went to her doctor, and was told that this pregnancy is not going to last. You're going to end up having a miscarriage. There were conversations in between all that where she was being sent home, she was waiting too long, and unbeknownst to her, her questions of what she should do and how she should go about, you know, seeing through the miscarriage, um, she decided to go home. And that's when the situation happened, which happens to a lot of women on a daily basis. She went to the bathroom and the miscarriage happened and she flushed. And her just telling that honestly, like other women would have to a, a nurse practitioner, we later learned had taken that information and called the police because she herself didn't know or she herself assumed that because of the Ohio laws that Brittany committed a crime by not properly discarding the remains of the child that she was carrying. And she was prosecuted. Thankfully, she wasn't held on bail where she was sitting behind bars for X amount of months. As we know, this case has gone on and most people who can't afford bail, if they're given a certain dollar amount, they end up sitting there until a resolution happens or bail is reduced and they're able to pay it. And so Brittany was able to be out and as her attorney fought the case and it came back a few months later that they did not, they declined, a grand jury declined to um, indict her, which was great news for everyone because if they, if the grand jury had decided to indict Brittany for abusing a corpse, not only would that have thrown her into the criminal justice system unnecessarily, it would have also, you know, set a precedent for other women around the country, black, white, or other, to actually be concerned that their natural body behavior can end up being a criminal charge and sprayed across the internet. And you're busy, you can't even heal from the the loss of the child that you probably were dreaming about. I'm not sure what Brittany's situation was with this particular pregnancy, but any woman and any in this day and age where all the complications of black women having to get pregnant or even just having a safe pregnancy to term, having that blasted out there in the public eye, it's a horrible thing. But Brittany went through it. And um, from what I understand, her attorney has said that she has been very grateful for the outpouring of support that she received from 
other advocates and other women who've been in her shoes. And um, yeah, she's going to possibly become an advocate herself, which most people who have experienced the system do become advocates. Yeah. And, and this is another this is an example of why it's important to have us, because you were if you weren't the first, you were one of a small few people who were covering this. And then somehow, some way, either through her attorney or whatever, somebody got wind of it or read your article or whatever. And then it started becoming a national story. Uh, but this was like months after she had been arrested. Uh, so, again, this is the reason why it's important to have the black press, because this story should have been right up there with the young lady in Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. who had to leave her state to have an abort a medically approved abortion right uh, but you know and this is the reason why people in ohio the the citizens of ohio wanted to make sure that abortion was a constitutional right in that state um the next case is niani finlayson finlayson uh now I, like I said, I'm just going to try to throw the, the what I've picked up from it and then let you deal into it. But this was a young lady who was killed by a Los Angeles County deputy sheriff. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was her child. I think her child is like, what, nine years old. And yeah. and the officer killed her in front of her child. Yeah. Tell the story. So last year, um, Nilani Finlayson calls 911. She's on the phone with 911, and her daughter is with her. The man that she's dating at the time is in her home, and she wants this man out of her house. Most people who have someone they don't want around them, they first line of defense. If they don't know how to get rid of the person, they call 911. It's what we're taught from the time we're children. And so... You know, Nailani did what she knew to do. In the interim, she had a, a kitchen knife on her for protection. And the accusation was the man pushed her daughter, who was nine years old, and she wanted this man out. When the police arrived, it were two officers, a woman and a man, both white. And they, the body camera video shows the woman kicking at the door, which could be seen as a violation of some type of... Um, police procedure, um, Nailani then opens the door. But in that time, nobody's announcing themselves, police, like anything, right? Like, so it doesn't even give Nailani an opportunity to put the knife down to then, you know, address the people who are kicking at her door. Um, but when the body camera shows you, um, it's two different body camera vi- visions, um, um, angles they're showing you, but the one from the shooting officer's side you see Nailani with the knife in her hand and still on the phone with 911 and her daughter nearby. And she says, I'm about to stab this man. But she's talking in general. She's talking in jest. She's in the middle of a heated situation. Of course, she's going to be bellowing out just anything. But of course, they not, they're not seeing it this way because this could be a moment of uh, lack of cultural understanding, right? So the officers are going inside of the apartment as the body camera is showing. And Nailani is seen in the area where the man she wants out of her house, who's sitting on the couch, she's in the area where he is. The officer whose body camera we're watching, who is also the shooting officer, there's no words exchanged. 
Shots go off, four shots to Nailani. She gets shot. She's dead. The daughter was in the kitchen at the time, but still could see and hear her, her mother dead in the living room. And the gentleman that she wanted out of the house is screaming, why did you shoot her? And so her um, family, attorney, and everybody who has been um, very much involved in this, a lot of investigations are happening. Black Lives Matter grassroots is on top of this as well to lend support to the family. And um, this officer who um, shot Nailani, we found out through investigating arms that he had committed the same type of act a couple of years ago to somebody else, where he also just walked up in the house and just opened fire, no words exchanged. And in that situation, there was no body camera to show what happened. And in turn, he was cleared of charges and back on the streets to then less than a year later, or maybe a little bit over a year, kills Nailani. And so um, justice is still being called for her from her family and other activists in the area. And um, it's just another unfortunate um, person's name to be added to the list of rallying cries at the next Black Lives Matter rally that unfortunately may happen because of the history of how many police shootings we have in this country. Now, is this deputy still on the force? As you know, the rules and policies of most police departments, the officers removed from duty pending investigation. So he's still getting paid his salary, which we found on the Internet was close to over two hundred thousand dollars he's been making. And he hasn't really been on the job that long. OK, but he hasn't so, been on the. Go ahead. I, I wasn't sure if this was his case, but I believe he um, is also training other officers on how to. Yes, it is. He's also a field training officer. When he got back on the force after the first case um, he was cleared from, they promoted him to becoming a training officer. So this person who just walks up in the houses during 911 calls and shoots people, questions asked later, has been training other officers in this department as well. So that's yeah. a concern. So I don't know if you did any background on me, but uh, I have a law enforcement background. So... Mm-hmm. Anytime I hear that, it's like this guy screwed up and now he's, he, he comes back and gets a promotion. Uh, and as somebody that we literally had to rearrange <laughs> a state government department when I was in the legislature because this racist guy was given a promotion and we were like, no, no, we want him fired. Why is he getting so we literally had to separate one agency from another just so that agency he was under could fire him. I mean, you know, it's just, I, I don't understand that logic, but that's, but I, I wanted her name and I wanted that case to, to get highlighted. Now, this one, a friend of mine, Carlos Moore, uh, is the attorney. And the young man's name is Quintavious Eason. Uh, now, he's a child, right? He's like 10, 11 years old, something like that. And this is in yeah. Yeah, and this is in Mississippi. Now, he was arrested for peeing somewhere. Go go into that one because I think people, I think some people may have heard of the case, but it hasn't really been getting a lot of national play. But you've been covering it uh, for Capital B, so kind of talk about what's going on with him. Yeah. So Quantavius um, was ten years old over the summer. It was August. His mom was running an errand at a lawyer's office for separate issues. And, you know, he was in the car with his sister and he needed to go to the bathroom. Okay. 
So the sister warns her, her brother that there's no there's no bathroom in the law office. There's a sign and everything. No bathroom for the public. So I guess the you know Quantavius being ten and needing to pee, he did what little boys when their parents are around, though whenever they're on a road trip or wherever, he got out the car, discreetly put the car door behind him, and he went to the bathroom. As he was peeing, an officer passed by and seen what was going on, stopped and told, you know, told him that that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing. It was wrong, but then proceeded to go find his mom, who he, the officer alerts the mom what happened. The mom also tells Pontavious that he should have came inside so that they could have handled it later on. And, you know, his mom, LaTanya, thought that was the end of it. Oh, no, here comes four more officers coming on through and... I'm sure LaTanya must have been as confused as I was reading the reports that th these grown five men, all white, could not come up with the decision to let the little boy go and go home. No, they decided they must arrest this child for public urination. And they put him behind the, in the back of the police car, the marked police car. So, you know, it had all the materials of somebody who was an adult arrested, handcuffed, the, the gate, the hard seat, the, the whole gamut in the back of a police car, if you've ever been in one, it's not a comfortable scene. And for a 10-year-old to be back there, not handcuffed, all right? So I guess the police felt that, oh, well, we didn't handcuff him with something to highlight. They never thought about the separation anxiety that could come from this child. They didn't think about the mom being take, have her child taken from her. She has no recourse in that moment. But what she did do in that moment was take a photograph. And that photograph is what 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 made made this story become at least the international conversation of what laws do we really and what should we really enforce, especially when it comes to juveniles. And we have this child here who unnecessarily is going to be put into the criminal justice system for what? And when they get to trial, you know, at first mom was thinking, let me just go through the system like most parents do when their child gets busted for something as trivial as this. She was just going to sign the papers away, probably not even read it, and keep it moving. But for some reason, LaTanya said, let me read these documents. And after talking through it with Carlos Moore, her attorney, they realized that having their having her child be subjected to adult-like ramifications for something like peeing, it's just, no. Mom had to stand up for her child and say, no, I'm not signing this. Even though the, ram the ram ramifications of it for him would have been worse, they were threatening to amplify the charges and that would have caused it to become a bigger case. And so they took the gamble. And so Carlos, Carlos Moore filed the appeal to um, throw the case out. And a few months after that, about earlier this month, February um, 5th, they dismissed the case. So thankfully, Latanya did what I hope more parents are able to do if they have legal representation to stand up for the children if they're behind the system, especially in juvenile court, so that they could prevent this kind of stuff from ever happening. Now, what city in Mississippi was this? This was in a tiny town. I, I, I might mispronounce the name of it. Um, what part of Mississippi was it called? Um, apologies for the delay. What is the name of the... Uh, Centobia? Senatobia. Senatobia. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. I was yeah. talking to A. Senatobia. Yes. 
Yeah, so they don't get a whole lot of action in Senatobia. I'm just the officers; they don't they don't do a whole lot of work, and so you don't say. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I guess that was kind of the thing, um, you know. But that that's just insane that they would go to that length. Because if 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 that was me, and had done it, it had been like it's a misdemeanor charge. So for them to even go through the motions of that for a child that's that's usually when that officer's like hey you ain't supposed to be doing that where your mom at you know you go ahead and talk to the bomb and say look you know your child was out here peeing right let's let's not do that okay and and keep it pushing it it, it is like you know that was your officer friendly moment and keep it moving but for them to do that that that's kind of the underscore about the value of black bodies right mm-hmm. and how our children, uh, the, the theme is that how our children are adultified as compared to other children. And mm-hmm. it's like this 10-year-old peeing was such a threat, first of all, that you called backup. What, what was that all about? And then to, to, to turn around and to go through the machinations of actually having a court case to actually put the taxpayers through that, I, you know. But it, well, go ahead. <laughs> we, can be, we can rest assured that the officer who could not independently think and had to call for backup has been fired. So we don't have to worry about him being an officer in that jurisdiction. What we may have to be concerned about is him going to another jurisdiction and doing the same thing. Right. And, and, and we kind of joke about it in a sense, but the reality is that these are the type of officers, Right that develop this implicit bias because of something. I got fired because I arrested this kid for public urination and yada, yada, yada. And instead of taking that as a teachable moment about not trying to Barney Fife your job, you internalize it. And then the next black person you encounter in law enforcement, you, you don't treat them with the same objectivity that you should as a law enforcement officer. So, that that's the danger of that too. And so but I wanted to highlight that and and of course like I thought we were being pressed for time, but um I I definitely wanted to highlight that and I want you to talk about the situation with Darian Harris. Now this is the brother that was in Chicago. I think he got arrested for something. Those charges were dropped and then turned around and he got rearrested again. And actually had to serve some time. Kind of, kind of talk about that story. Yeah. So Darian Harris had been released from after being wrongfully um, convicted for twelve years for a crime he did not commit. That was relying on a sole witness that happened to have the vision of like the blindest of the blind, like could not see anything and had documents to show it in federal court because he was one of those people who were suing several businesses and including a university for discriminating against him for his legally blind vision. (laughs) But this information was not known to the defense. And it's kind of shaky to know if the prosecutor knew about it because it seemed like they knew, but they didn't. So it was very conflicting. Nonetheless, um, the charges were overturned and I mean, the charges were dismissed and pending a decision from the Cook County um, State Attorney's Office, whether they were going to retry him or not. And that's that lady. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's 
That's under Miss Fox, right? Is that her name? Yes, Kim Fox. Kim Fox, who has made national attention for some right and wrong reasons, whether it came from, to, from the Jesse Smollett case, whether it's the R. Kelly case. But notably, she has gone, she was the first black woman to serve in that office. And she also has shook up the office by having their conviction review um, integrity unit launched, which has been revamped to a conviction review unit which has overturned several wrongful convictions in that office, which is the second largest office in the country. So, you know, Kim Fox has been, you know, she has her um, name out there for those reasons, but she it was the one in this case. And surprising to me that she would even sit back and decide whether they should retry Daria's case was strange to me. This seemed to be like an open and shut, wrongful conviction, let the man go home. No, that was not what happened. So. Um, this was another or situation where um, Black Lives Matter grassroots had been in contact with the family for support, and we were able to um, contact the family through them and talk to the mom and talk about the, the 12 years that it has been for the family, what they've been through. Because, like I said earlier, when it comes to wrongful conviction cases, it really keeps me in this beat because it shows how the system can be used for and against people. Um, and righting those wrongs are very important to tell. Um, to show how jacked up the system really is. And so um, we, we we interviewed the mom and we, and Darian, uh, as we were actually doing the reporting, it came out that they were going to release him from prison and he didn't have to go through a second trial. So the story had to be reformatted, obviously, but it was good news. And Darian is home. I believe he got married and all this other stuff is just happening for him right now, which is the, the positive things that, um, we we like to see in the when there's an exoneration and, and I'm sure he'll get resources and I'm sure he'll file a lawsuit and those are other um, actionable recourse methods that people who have been wrongfully convicted can take to get um, some type of compensation for the years they were t torn away from their families. Yeah. So, you know, again, that's that's just part of why it's so important for you and others and really just the black press as a whole to exist, uh, to, to keep shining a light and keep putting pressure because, you know, Miss Fox, a unique situation. And then I, we got to wrap this up, but Miss Fox got elected because the black lives matter movement in Chicago was against the previous state's attorney. She was the state's attorney that was involved in the cover-up of uh, the young man who got killed with the knife. Um, I can't think of his, you know, he got shot 16 times. And, um, yeah, so. He'll come to me. Yeah, and so, I mean, I, 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 you know, and you have to forgive us, ladies and gentlemen, because the unfortunate thing is there's just so many of these tragedies and it's like, and Laquan you're trying to McDonald. remember, huh? Did I get it? It's Laquan McDonald. McDonald, that's the name. Uh, and so, yeah, that brother, you know, and so they they held that tape for like a year, I think, right? And so the Black Lives Matter folks campaigned against that woman. And I think she was like the first Latino to have the position. And then Miss Fox wanted them to endorse her. And they said, no, we're not endorsing you. We're just trying to get rid of her and so yeah. now if you benefit from that so be it and this particular case with Darian Harris legitimizes why they didn't endorse her because now it gives them the latitude to to deal with her office 
and make sure that justice is done for him just for anybody else. So, but, you know, like you said, at least she's, she has fulfilled some obligation in trying to fix some wrongful convictions, but nonetheless, um, the, the the system is jacked, and 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 I really appreciate the fact, Christina, that you're out here highlighting uh, the good and the bad of it. So, for people to uh, be able to get in touch with you and to follow what's going on, uh, not just in the criminal justice sector, but other aspects of the black community on Capital B, kind of tell folks how they can, how they either get in touch with you or follow Capital B. So you can follow Capital B on all platforms at Capital B News. We are Capital B in the formal sense of it, but for social media purposes, we have the news at the end. And you can follow me on most platforms at Chris Carrega, so that's C-H-R-I-S-C-A-R-R-E-G-A, on X and Twitter, and I believe, I mean, X is Twitter, duh. X thread. Um, I mean, they change their names every other day. Right. Um, <laughs> I can't keep up. But nonetheless, I'm found. I'm out there. LinkedIn, we could connect that way, too. And um, look out for all of our election coverage that's going to be coming through. Um, of course, in criminal justice world, we have elections that we'll be keeping eye, eye on, such as the Franklin County, Ohio district attorney race. They may vote their first black DA there. And I'm going to be publishing a story next week about that. So I look forward to everybody reading that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Christina Correga, please follow her on on Capital B and please follow Capital B because, uh, you know, like I said, truth telling is the commodity in this day and age. All right, guys. And we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. And so now it's time for my next guest. And that is Miss Sharon Kyle. Sharon Kyle is the former president of the Guild Law School in Los Angeles, a law school that trains public interest attorneys. Sharon is an admitted social justice media activist. She is currently the publisher and co-founder of the L.A. Progressive, a daily digital political magazine that she and her partner slash husband Dick Price, have distributed for more than 15 years. Before immersing herself in the law and social justice, Ms. Kyle was a member of several space flight teams at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where she managed resources for projects like Magellan, Genesis, and Mars Pathfinder. Sharon also sits on several boards, including the board of directors of the ACLU and the editorial board of blackcommentator.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Sharon Kyle. All right, Sharon Kyle, how you doing, ma'am? You doing good? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I'm honored to have you on. Um, 
and uh, I'm honored that we are part of the network and LinkedIn and, you know, we kind of have some of the same friends, uh, which is always good. Um, but, you know, I, I really, some people, you know, you're trying to pull for a particular issue or whatever the case may be, but there's some people you just want to have a conversation with. And you're one of those folks because you've been doing this for a long time and, uh, you and your husband. And, and so, uh, you know, I just, I, I'm really honored to, to be able to spend some time with you and just have a conversation. But the first thing I like to do is, uh, start off with a quote, right? So I, I pull a quote that's related to either the work that that person is doing something they might have said, something that they might have written. So your quote is, is really, really short. It says, the power of the people will bring life to the world we deserve to live in. What does that quote mean to you? Hmm. Now, um, I don't think that's a quote that I, that's something I've stated, although I, I'd love to steal it, um, <laughs> but it did not originate with me. But what it means to me is that collectively, we the people have, we already have the power to create the world that we want, to create the kinds of governments that we want, to create the outcomes that we want. If only we understood we had that power, and if only we understood that that power comes to us as a collective. So the division that exists um, disempowers us. So, you know, and, and part of, I guess, um, what you what you do is based off of, from from our research, from off of your faith. So, what exactly is a progressive Christian voice? Great, thank you so much. Um, lately particularly since um, Trump, the latter part of Trump's um, administration, I've been making it very clear that I am a Christian. For, for a long time, um, white evangelical Christians have co-opted Christianity. That's been my experience. And I actually feel a sense of um, resentment when people blame evangelical Christians for Trump being in office. I like, I think it's important that they make the distinction that we're talking about white evangelical Christians who provide complete loyalty. I think that they are the single demographic that has been, that has pledged fealty to, uh, to Donald Trump. For me, what it means to be a Christian is to live a Christ-like life. And I do believe that if Jesus Christ was walking with us today, he would be out there marching against Donald Trump. So if anyone was to read the Bible and to read, read the red letters, read what did Jesus say? What did he do? And I think that you would characterize him as a progressive, someone who wanted free, uh, e equality, freedom um, for everyone. And I don't think that Trump or white evangelical Christians are living in ways that anyone would characterize as Christ-like. 
Why did you and your husband start the L.A. Progressive Newsletter? What was what was the motivation to do that? Yeah. Okay, so my husband and I, um, both of us were married to other people at one time, so we're not each other's first marriage, but we are our last marriage. And at the time that we got together, I uh, I already had children. He already has had a child. I have grown children. And we wanted to embark on a project that we could that sort of could be our child. And we were trying to think of something to do, and we had similar or really pretty much identical uh, political leanings. So we volunteered for a local Democratic club and also and volunteered to be their communications people. And we created their newsletter for the local Democratic club. Well, in 2008, when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were running in the Democratic primary, I think that that was a primary like no other, except for the primary that's going on right now. Everybody, everybody was interested. People who didn't vote before, well, in the black community, people that I knew that never voted, they were voting. And I found that we wanted to carry articles about Barack Obama and in our particular Democratic club, many of the people were supporting Hillary and they did not want us to publish articles about Barack Obama. So we start, I said to my husband, I said, let's just start our own thing. And that's how we started it. We started it because it was conflict within the Democratic, um, this is an extension actually of the Democratic Party. Initially, Barack Obama was not supported. They, they, had, it, they had planned to place Hillary in from the start, but uh, Barack was too successful and he won them over. Well, and I can attest to that because I was a I was the I was a Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate in Mississippi during that time. And the reason why they wanted me to run in Mississippi was because we had a unique situation. We had two elections. Trent Lott had resigned. So that opened up a special election. And then they wanted former Governor Ronnie Musgrove, who I used to work for, uh, to to run in that race. And they were trying to discourage me from, even though I had run against lot two years earlier, they were trying to discourage me from doing a petition campaign to uh, run in, in the special. And Thad Cochran's seat was up. So they came down to Mississippi and, you know, talked to me and, uh, you know, and when they realized that I was serious about running, they said, well, look, um, why don't you run <laughs> for for the U.S. Senate against Cochran? Because in their mindset, like you said, they thought Hillary was going to be the nominee and they figured they needed somebody to get out the black vote. Well, lo and behold, Barack Obama got the nomination and now people in Mississippi think I actually have a chance to win because <laughs> Barack Obama was doing so well. So I, I definitely relate to the conflict that you were, because I had to deal with it as a candidate. Um, they were, there was a lot of tension within the Democratic Party. Donna Brazil, uh, you know, had to cut through some tape for me, and eventually the National AFL-CIO had to step in. So I, it was a lot of tension. So I, I definitely understood why you felt that you, you and your husband had to kind of break away from that, which kind of leads me to my next question. Many people have the impression that California is a progressive state in the national political discussion. Is that an accurate impression? Absolutely not. <coughs> um, 
Los Angeles and San Francisco and maybe uh, 15, 20 miles outside of those urban areas is where you find um, most people who might be left leaning or consider themselves progressives. But I'd say that even that is not an accurate description of what I would call a progressive. I think that they're liberals and liberals just kind of want policies to be nicer and kinder. They don't necessarily want for there to be a real revolution, which is what I want. Um, and I'm not talking about a violent revolution, but I don't believe that we can get the kind of government that we want unless we have a dramatic change. And we can't have that by being liberals. So no, I don't agree. And then once you leave Los Angeles and San Francisco and you get into Bakersfield or you know get further inland away from the coasts, um, well, let's face it, California has elected in the past 20 years two or three Republican governors. Um, so no, California is not a progressive state. Yeah, and I, you know, the history of California to me has always been, it's been a swing state. Uh, you know, for in, in, in my lifetime, that's always been the case. I remember Gray Davis and, uh, of course, Schwarzenegger, um, you know, Reagan. yeah, Reagan was, I was like one years old when Reagan was governor, but I'm just saying, I guess that's in my lifetime, but you know, uh, yeah, there's been Republican governors and, you know, Kevin McCarthy is from California. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Dan is a, all these people. So it's like, I've always viewed California as a swing state. We've just, as Democrats, We've just been lucky to get those electoral votes every election, but it's it's not easy. And considering how many people and all that is a very expensive state to to campaign in. So, no, I, I never thought that, but that's kind of the national narrative that California. That is, right. That, yeah. Right. That's that's the narrative. But if you if you're really steeped in politics, particularly progressive politics, then you understand what the narrative is. You know, it's, it's sort of what people who are just um, riding on the surface of politics come to believe. But if they do any research, they'll know that in fact, we don't really have a, a coalition of progressives that are united in any state. Right. Um of all of the issues that have come across the political spectrum in this last election cycle, which issue do you think is the most important? Which one do you want progressives uh, or just a general electorate to focus in on? Wow, that's hard. Yeah, because, you know, I published the L.A. Progressive, laprogressive.com for your, for your audience. And we, I was actually just looking through all of our categories and all of our tags. And we have over 40,000 articles covering a good 1,000 categories. It's very difficult. We publish every day. It's a digital magazine. It's hard for me to pick one issue. I am a woman. I'm a black woman. So there are some things that are concerned to me that maybe might not be con a concern for other people. Um, things like in, in Los Angeles, and I live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles County has the largest unhoused population in the nation. And sadly, about 75% of that unhoused population is black or brown. 
And when I say largest, I'm saying on any given night, you will find 70,000 people living in tents alongside the freeways, underneath bridges and overpasses. So I'd say that's one of my number one concerns. Uh, another, and my concerns really are about the economy because underneath that, the undergirding issue that is at the root cause that causes the problems that we're having with uh, not having affordable housing, uh, uh, mass incarceration is another, is another big issue and it is impacting our universities. About 10 years ago, when you looked at the budget for uh, California for its uh, UC system, which is University of California for its Cal State system, the budget for those systems exceeded the budget for uh, California state incarceration systems. That carceral system passed the university and Cal State system about 10 years ago. So it surpassed that. We spend more money keeping people locked up in cages than we do in educating uh, young Californians, particularly, again, disproportionately, again, black and brown people. And you touched on the, the homeless situation. Um, I was reading somewhere, there's, there's some kind of effort um, dealing with Skid Row um, that's been going on for a while that they want to like clean that up or, or get rid of people being on Skid Row um, and or, so yeah, go ahead. Enlighten, so in, enlighten in, us about it. Right. So, so in Los Angeles, when I moved to Los Angeles, I'm originally from New York City. When I moved to Los Angeles, the downtown area of Los Angeles was sort of a neglected area. And over the past oh, 15, 20 years, it, it started out maybe 25 years ago, there was a county redevelopment agency that was pouring money into developing the downtown area. We didn't really have people that lived in high rises like we do in Los Angeles. But slowly but surely, the downtown area, all of those old historic buildings where they were lofts, they were commercial spaces that were converted into residential spaces with, resi with, uh, with commercial spaces down below. Um, that has sort of taken over the downtown and there's been a, a, an emergence of a really beautiful downtown. Uh, sadly, that's resulted in them doing sweeps of people who were unhoused in some cases due to no fault of their own because we have a, a, a brutal economy here in Los Angeles. I don't know what the, I, I, am, I am not a renter. I live in my own home, but I think that the average rental rate for a two bedroom might be something close to $3,000 a month. My goodness. And I'm not talking luxury. I'm not talking luxury. I'm talking average, $3,000 a month. Um, I think it's very hard to find anything less than $2,000 a month in the city of Los Angeles. So people are just one um, paycheck away from losing their housing. Um, and I, I, I got off track, so I don't know if I answered your question. Well, I, I was just saying, I know the city council, there was an issue about, you know, how the the street was going to be, you know, redone. And, like, they were talking about, you know, signs that were, I mean, it got into minutia about signs depicting this area as Skid Row and all that stuff. 
I mean, oh, I see. Yeah, so it's been a long, there's been a long drawn out battle. I will say that the ACLU, um, and I'm on the board of the ACLU of Southern California. The ACLU recently had a huge victory fighting in Los An in um, Orange County, where the loss, where in Orange County the um, the sheriffs would just come up to unhoused people's encampments and just knock down their their tents, take off all their belongings, trash them, just, just throw their personal belongings away, which the ACLU was successful in um, getting, I guess, initially gaining an injunction. And then they won the case where they found it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment right of re unreasonable searches and unreasonable seizures. We're hoping that the success in that other county will spread throughout the rest of the counties in California, which I think we have 58 counties in California. But mostly around Los Angeles and San Francisco and San Diego is where you're going to find the bulk of the unhoused people, with the vast majority of them living in L.A. County. All right. So now this is where uh, I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit about certain people. Um, as you kind of stated prior to the interview, some of the people I'm going to ask, you know, uh, and there's some that you haven't met, but you, you know, of them. Um, well, I think you've met most of them, but there's some that you know more than others. So kind of talk to us about your support of Julian Assange. Now I'm going to say what I know about him. And you correct me and, and go into detail. I just know that he was the guy who he was over this company called WikiLeaks. And he was able to get information from, I guess, the DNC about, you know, internal emails or whatever. And he, he has faced federal charges for that. He sought asylum. He found it, I guess he was, because he's not an a American citizen. He found asylum in an embassy in England uh, from another country. I can't remember which one. I want to say Ecuador, but I'm not sure that's the right one. And then finally, the British authorities also had charges against him. And so somehow, some way, they worked out a deal with that country to physically pull him out of that embassy. And now he's facing charges. In, 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 in the United Kingdom. That's what I kind of know. Um, talk about, you know, correct me on that, and then talk about why his case is an important case. Okay. So um, Julian Assange and what's been happening in, the, in Julian Assange's life is important to anybody who is interested in democracy. Julian Assange created WikiLeaks, which was a software application or a platform that would receive information submitted by whistleblowers. So whistleblowers, for, for your audience that is unaware, mostly whistleblowers that work for the government. If you have a job with the government, you have whistles, you have allegedly, you have whistleblower protection. When you work for the government, they're always telling you, if you see something, say something. But they don't actually give you an opportunity to say something without risking losing your job. So um, Chelsea Manning, 
who at the time, um, I, I, I'm Chelsea's name is um, escaping me, um, but Manning was a government employee, was in the armed services and witnessed a violation of um, armed services rules where there were people who were killed intentionally and there was videotape, people who were killed in Iraq and Chelsea with using the whistleblower right, the right as a whistleblower, sent that information to WikiLeaks. And um, Julian Assange, working as a journalist, published that information on WikiLeaks. If Julian, and as a result of that, WikiLeaks had up until that point existed for maybe 10 years, but when this videotape was un, was disclosed, there was a hunt for Julian Assange. And Julian Assange went into the embassy. He was in, um, in England, but he sought protection in um, an embassy. And I'm going to you say in Ecuador, it might be Ecuador. It could be Colombian. It could be the Colombian embassy. I'm looking it up on WikiLeaks on, um, on Wikipedia right now because I can't remember which embassy it was. Right now he's in Belmarsh Prison, I do know that. And um, my husband and I, along with many, many other people, have been trying to get the story out about WikiLeaks and about Julian Assange because it's important and it's especially important for me as the publisher of an independent publication called the LA Progressive. So he is being, he is, accused of violating the Espionage Act. That has never happened with a journalist. Journalists have the freedom and the right to report the information that they are given. In fact, the information that was given to Julian Assange was also covered in the New York Times. They're not going after the New York Times. They are going after this independent small person who has no resources and no power and had, had to hide out in the embassy. The United States, most powerful uh, nation in the world, finally got, um, I don't, I don't want to say Ecuador, I, I should look this up. It, it, it could be Colombia, and I should know it, but got them to get rid of Julian Assange, and they put him out of the embassy. And as soon as they put him out of the embassy, the United States had also made a deal with um, the UK, and the UK put him, arrested him. United States also worked with Australia. Now, it's important to note here that Julian Assange is not an American citizen. Julian Assange is a citizen of Australia. He's under no obligation to follow the laws of the United States. He's been to the United States once, and I think, um, I mean, for a very limited time, he may have had a layover. But the fact is, he did not get this information um, from any unusual way. He got it from a whistleblower and he published it as any publisher could do or would do. I would do it. And it's really dangerous. They're establishing a dangerous precedent. If he is prosecuted under the Espionage Act, I would be placed in a very vulnerable position because the precedent will have been established where a journalist has been arrested and charged for just reporting the truth. Yeah, and 
so I'm glad that you 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 spelled that out because a lot of people have heard the name and like I said, I'm thinking about the DNC stuff, but this was really about the the, the Iraq War situation. And uh, like you, like you, I can't remember what Chelsea Manning's name now is, uh, but I, I know that. Uh, now that when you started telling the story, okay, now, okay, yeah, that, okay, I got it. So I, I'm glad that you, you pointed that out. Um, the other person was Marianne Williamson. You're one of the few platforms that really, really talked to her. I tried to get her on before she dropped out this time, but uh, that really have kind of talked to her about what her vision is and why she wanted to run for president this time and four years ago. Kind of talk to the listeners about what was, I don't know if I, appealing to, to, to you and your husband as far as to interview her, but what, what, did, what did you get out of your conversations and her campaign? So, what attracted me most to Marianne, I knew Marianne before she ran. Um, I knew Marianne maybe 10 years before she ran. Uh, initially, we met, she was giving a talk, and I was asked to field the audience for questions on her behalf. And we became friends after that initial meeting. And she told me that at the time that our friendship started, that she was really interested in politics. She was concerned about the direction that the nation was going. She had a huge following. She, at that time, had several New York Times bestsellers. And she thought that she could possibly take her celebrity, for lack of a better word, and get the group of people that followed her to become more engaged civically. Because most of the people that followed Marianne uh, were not civically engaged. And she wanted to change that. And so she started doing these... Um, trainings called Sister Giant, which was really focusing on getting women, as most of her followers are women, getting women more engaged, uh, civic engagement, whether it be running for office or yada, yada, yada. A, while, a little while after that, maybe a year or so after that, she decided to run uh, for California uh, congressional seat. And that was when I heard her spell out what her vision was for that congressional district, and it fully aligned with mine. Um, her position on education, on tuition reimbursement, on um, health care, universal health care especially. It's one thing that many politicians have a difficult, a difficult time taking a stand for universal health care, primarily because uh, the funders of their campaigns, the deep-pocketed corporations, it's difficult to talk against big pharma. It's difficult to speak against the insurance industry. And she was willing to do it. And, um, and, and for the most part, her position on the environment, on health care, on education, on immigration, she was the first candidate to talk about the need for reparations. I don't know if you remember, uh, when she had an opportunity to be on the debating stage, she brought up reparations, and then the other candidates um, jumped in. But no one was talking about reparations until Mary Ann introduced the topic and showed that she was brave enough to bring that to the American people. Well, that's what got my attention. When when she stood up there and and said the R word, <laughs> right, in politics. 
had said, written, talked about reparations and was articulate about it. It wasn't like she was kind of saying, well, we need a study and it's time to explore this, which is most political talk. I mean, she was making an argument that few black uh, elected officials were saying. And so naturally, I I said, "Mm, let me let me pay attention to her and see how she's going. And, you know, with the dynamics of what was happening, you know, it was a long shot chance. But, you know, I I, I, and I really felt this time around was going to be really a struggle because everybody was everybody's just kind of focused in on saving democracy. Right. But, you know, so I didn't think she was going to get any traction this time. But, you know, I, I think four years from now. She might need to look at it again, but you know, mm-hmm. it is like, you know, after a while you get burned out on that. So, but I, I, I wanted to touch on it cause you actually had interaction with her. And, and like I said, I would love to have her on the podcast to just have a conversation. All right. So what I was afraid of time is, is slipping away from us, but you come from a state where, well, let me ask you this question. Cause I'm not going to get to all these other folks. Um, Although I did want to kind of get your take on LaFonza Butler because she's a fellow Jacksonian. So I wanted to get your take on how she is. But Barbara Lee in a debate uh, recently pulled out a platform that said she wanted a $50 minimum wage. Uh, Did you, when you saw that, did you say, woohoo? Or did, you know, what was your reaction when, when she pulled that out? and started talking about it, and how realistic are her chances in this Senate race? Yeah, I, so in California, the two top winners in the primary go on to the general election. So the three people, uh, Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee, are competing against each other. My hope is that um, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter are competing for the same audience and that uh, Barbara Lee is going to pick up the progressives and the people of color and that'll give her a shot because Adam Schiff has all the money in the world and Barbara Lee does not. Um, The $50 uh, minimum wage, I actually, I have to be very honest with you, I didn't know that she said that, but I'm glad that she did. I, how realistic is it that that will ever be achievable in this current climate? I don't think it is, but it certainly is something to target. It's something to get people to think, what would the minimum wage be if we had kept um, kept pace with cost of living? If you look at where the minimum wage was when the minimum wage was first established, I think, and, and then you increased it as the cost of living has increased, I think it's quite possible that we would be at $50 an hour. You know, you mentioned that you were just a kid when Ronald Reagan was in office. Well, I wasn't a kid. And um, I can remember when my father worked a job as a bus driver and my mother didn't work and we had, he bought a home and we had two cars and we went on vacations and you can't do that now. And there's a whole generation, several generations of people who don't realize that that's how it was. That was normal. You know, that wasn't rich. That was just regular normal. And we were black people then and we're black people now. So we could do that <laughs> on the bus driver's salary. Yeah. What, so what's her chances? I think her chances are pretty good. Okay. 
to make it to the general election. So what what was your take on LaFonza? How do, how do you feel? You know, she took the job knowing that basically she wasn't going to run for it. Uh, she had been a national figure running Emily's list. Um, what what was what is your take on her and how uh, that whole process of her being selected? I've always had tremendous respect for LaFonza Butler, but I have way more respect for her now than I ever did. And I think that her acceptance of that was strategic. I think that she knew that if she didn't take it, he was going to set, select someone else and that someone else may have chosen to run in November. And she knew that she was not going to run in November. So I'm happy that she accepted the offer. I'm glad that she turned down an opportunity to run in November. And I think that she is a brilliant young woman who has a fantastic uh, future ahead of her. So um, Gavin Newsom, um, is he the real deal? Uh, is he somebody to that's legitimate in 2028? Has he been the kind of governor that somebody that is considered progressive would feel comfortable running in, in, for that national position? So, you know, when you say somebody who is progressive, and I de definitely am progressive, but I'm also a realist. I think that Gavin Newsom also is talented. He's smart, savvy, tactical, and he does his homework. I have met him face-to-face, uh, -face, uh, had dinner with him. I've listened to him. I've watched him plan for what's going to happen in the four years from now. It looks like that's what he's doing. He's never said that to me, but it looks like that's, that's what he's doing. But I think that we as progressive has to, have to be real. If someone were a pure progressive, they'll they would never make it politically in this current climate where we have how many, 70 million, 71 million people that voted for Donald Trump? So that tells you something about the mindset of the average American. I think that um, it's impossible for us to get exactly what we want as, as progressives. But if uh, Gavin were to run um, currently, and notwithstanding, um, I don't know, maybe there's a Cornel West or somebody else or Marianne Williamson, but I think that uh, Gavin would be a good uh, president. What about if he's running against Kamala Harris, who also was a statewide elected official in California, has been a, you know, is currently the vice president, has been considered, I don't know if she's been considered a polarizing figure in, in a true sense, but, you know, she, she's been out there and she's got national cachet. And like I said, she's also from California. So, and from San Francisco. So how, how would that match up? You think? So what uh, Gavin has advantages that Kamala Harris did not have. You know, Gavin walks through this world in a different body. And I believe that Kamala Harris, um, Vice President Harris, has had to make concessions that um, Gavin Newsom may not have needed to make in order to just keep her job. There are a lot of people that take exception with her being a prosecutor take exception with um, some of the decisions she made as a prosecutor uh, in San Francisco. 
I don't necessarily take exception. I will say that she has never struck me as being a trailblazer. Um, I think that Gavin Newsom might be more willing to take more daring positions. But everything has to be taken into consideration. I mean, when he in when he was in San Francisco um, as the mayor of San Francisco and he um, allowed same sex couples to get married, that was a, a brave, daring thing to do that he just kind of made the decision to go out there and do it. I don't think that a black woman could have made a decision like that without paying a heavy price. Uh, just a woman, period, not just a black woman, a woman, period. So he has more freedom than she does. And we can, we as the citizens can benefit from that freedom. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm again, being a realist, we the people, that's the part that I really care about. What do we do? How do we, if we wanted Kamala Harris to be president, how are we making that happen in terms of giving her the support that she needs to have her back? Let's say that she want, really is a progressive in her heart and she really wants to make some bold moves, but she knows the backlash that she'd get. What would we do? And that's a good question to, to, to pose to people. Um, so I didn't want to, I did want to ask you since you're in LA and Karen Bass is the mayor. Um, if you had to give a report card grade, what would it be? And, and kind of justify it real quick. I would say, um, I would give her a B plus and it would be because of how she's addressing the number one problem, I think the number one problem in Los Angeles, which is the huge unhoused population. She's stepped in day one, trying to make a dent in the problem, and she is making a dent. Okay. So one thing you like to do uh, is make book recommendations. So for my audience, okay. what, what books should they be reading right now? Okay, so I didn't know you were going to ask me this question, but before I got on this call, I was watching Bonnie Willis on the stand, and it was just so clear to me that there's such a um, cultural lack of cultural competency and a breakdown culturally between the people who are questioning her and Bonnie Willis, and they were asking her about the fact that she has so much cash on hand. And she talked about how her father instructed her from a very young age. She says, when you grow up as a black woman, you better have money that you keep in, in your home. First of all, her father was a former Black Panther. Secondly, a lot of people are unfamiliar with the United States history of, of um, making black people run for their lives. We know about Tulsa, Oklahoma. But that happened all over the United States. And a book that they should read is written by a man named Elliot Jaspin. And the name of the book is Buried in the Bitter Waters, The Hidden History of Racial Cleansing in America. So um, I would say that that's a book they definitely should read. But I can give you a, a list. Um, Kianga Yamada Taylor wrote Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black home ownership. Kelly Lytle Hernandez 
uh, who won the MacArthur Genius Award, wrote City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. And this book focuses on how the um, indigenous people, um, indigenous to Mexico, were treated and caged here in Los Angeles and in ways that have never really been reported on. So that was my short answer to your question. That's good. That's good stuff. All right. If people want to get in touch with you and get hooked up with uh, LA Progressive and all that, how can they do that? Go to laprogressive.com and subscribe. It's free. Um, or you could donate. That would be nice. But uh, we publish every day. It's a digital publication, and it's all progressive politics 24-7. Well, Sharon, Kyle, uh, I appreciate the time that you did give me. It's pretty obvious we probably could talk a lot longer, but uh, I appreciate you giving me this time and, and coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Eric. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys, and we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. And so now it is time for our final guest. And that guest is none other than Joe Trippi. Joe Trippi is credited for his pioneering work to bring political campaigns into the digital age. As national campaign manager for Howard Dean's presidential campaign, Trippi's vision of using the Internet to connect directly with the campaign supporters change the way all campaigns will be waged going forward. The Atlantic magazine says Trippy's influence on Democratic Party politics has been profound and lasting. Trippy currently serves as a senior strategist for several nonprofit and corporate clients, as well as a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, where he is helping build a pro-democracy coalition to take on the authoritarian threat to our democracy. Trippy also serves as a senior advisor to Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Trippy was a senior strategist on Doug Jones's historic victory in Alabama, helping elect the first Democratic U.S. Senator in Alabama in 25 years. Trippy wrote the ads and helped build the campaign strategy, which raised over $22 million online. Trippy began his political career working on Edward M. Kennedy's presidential campaign in 1980. Since then, he has led efforts on a number of presidential, gubernatorial, Senate, and congressional campaigns. Trippy was responsible for groundbreaking media strategies that helped elect Roe Khanna, Mark Takano, Seth Moulton, and Kwaize Mfume, among others. He was also the media consultant and senior strategist behind Governor, California Governor Jerry Brown's historic come-from-behind victory in 2010, despite being outspent 4-1. to one. In addition to his political work, Trippy has consulted with a number of leading nonprofits and corporations, including the Humane Society of the United States, the American Cancer Society, Best Friends Animal Society, Monster.com, Toyota, Dahmer Chrysler, SES Americom, Corning, LabCorp, 
IBM, Lions Gates Films, Best Buy, and the Baltimore Orioles. Trippy is the host of the podcast at Trippy Show and the author of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Democracy, the Internet, and the Overthrow of Everything. The story of how his revolutionary use of the Internet combined with an impassioned, contagious desire to overturn politics, as usual, grew into a national grassroots movement and changed the face of American politics forever. A key figure in several presidential campaigns, Trippy has served as a political commentator and analyst for MSNBC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and CNN. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and distinct privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Joe Trippy. All right, the man, the myth, the legend, Joe Trippy. How you doing, sir? You doing good? Oh, yeah. Good to be with you, man. Well, it's good to see you. I, I, I wish I had money to have you. I just had Mike Podhoser on, and I was like, man, if I could have had Mike and Joe Trippi on my team in 2008, this would be a whole different conversation, I tell you. Um, but I, I, I really am honored to have you come on the show, and uh, especially in this year talking about politics. Um, one of the things... It's an honor to be with you, man. It really is. So. Yes, sir. Um, so one of the things I like to do with folks at the beginning of, of the interview is to throw a quote at them and then kind of get their response. And that quote could be something they said, something was written in a book or something relating to the topic. So your quote is, I learned something important about politics, Kennedy style. The cause was everything. Win or lose, spend yourself completely. Leave nothing on the table, not even your health. Losing would be painful, but not as painful as knowing there was something else you you could have done. What does that quote mean to you? Uh, you know, I not only learned it with Kennedy, but with with you know, uh, in you know, I ran track in high school and college, and uh, uh, you know, you you run through the tape, man. You give it everything. There's nothing left. Um, um, it you know, the cause is everything. Um, uh, and, and you know, I mean, when I said that, I meant a noble cause. I mean, fighting you know for people's rights or 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 uh, for for, for uh, you know people's right to vote and things like that. And you know, or you know, if you if you look at our democracy right now, fighting with everything you've got to save it, because I think a lot of people are sort of sleepwalking, you know, uh, they kind of, kind of aren't engaged. I mean, you got to be engaged and you got to give it everything or that's how democracy, you know, that's how it dies. So, you know, I've, uh, I don't know. It's always been what motivated me that, that, that is Kennedy style, uh, politics, uh, that, and I, I learned it working for Kennedy caution when I was 19, 20, 21 years old. Um, but it stuck with me, um, throughout my career. Um, uh, and, and I, I just try to pass that on. And so thank you for, for bringing that quote up. Yes, sir. All right. I'm a, we're going to play the time machine for a minute. So it's, it's the mid 1970s. You're a student at San Jose, San Jose state university. 
What gave you the spark to get involved in politics then? Oh, I was an aeronautical engineering major. Okay. Uh, and uh, about the same time, I started realizing that I don't need to understand uh, uh, lift and drag coefficients, uh, which is things you need to, to know. You know, if I wanted to fly, also I figured out that if I did learn to fly and get into aeronautics, I'd be and I was, you know, I'd be flying a big bus around in the sky. It wouldn't be really flying. Uh, and about the same time, um, there was a woman by the name of Iola Williams uh, trying to be the first African American to uh, uh, run uh, for city council in in the city of San Jose. And the entire punditry was saying she couldn't possibly win because San Jose was only 3% black and therefore the incumbent she was running against would uh, was surely going to defeat her. Um, something about that just really ticked me off and made me think, well, I'll, I'll go walk precincts for her. Um, and I did, and I got, other, I got other kids on campus to walk precincts for her. And uh, it took a while, but she got on the council. So, uh, uh, you know, that was and that was a big deal, you know, to, to have that kind of impact or to see, you know, just simple act of walking precincts, knocking on doors, talking to people could could make change. And it wasn't that far after that, long after that, I think maybe two, three years later when the Kennedy organization called me up and said, uh, you know, we, we want, want folks like you to come to work for us. And I got in my car and thought I'd. You know, I, I, I couldn't drive across the country fast enough. And then, then I never did go back and finish my degree in aeronautical engineering, which is something my my father's passed away was not really happy about it <laughs> at the time. I understand. Um, having run two U.S. Senate campaigns in the South during the Trump era, what do you see as the major challenges for Democratic candidates in that region of the country? Well, a lot of it, a lot of the challenges of Democratic candidates, how the Democratic Party um, itself has not invested in in building infrastructure and building a strong party. It's like they've, uh, they abandoned it because we can't win, therefore don't spend any time, money, effort, uh, even recruiting candidates uh, or helping candidates. Um, uh, and so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, when when Doug Jones ran in 2017, no Democrat had won in Alabama statewide for Senate in 25 years. Um, we couldn't get anybody in Washington in the party to to get, you know, to, to get behind us because they thought there was, you know, there's no way it can't be done. Uh, we're focused on other places. Um, but after a few weeks, I mean, Doug Jones was an incredible candidate. He got, he, he attracted, um, he, you know, having prosecuted the, the Klan members that uh, 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 bombed the, the 16th Street Baptist Church in, in, in Alabama, uh, in Birmingham, um, you know, he, he had pursued that case and, and, you know, it was 20 years before he brought them to justice, but he, he did. And I think that that one that made it possible for him not just to galvanize the community and and Democrats, but 
there were enough Republicans who respected him that it gave us a shot, at, you know, at, at bringing them along. Took us a while to convince the Democratic Party that it was possible, and they finally came on. But so, and we won. Um, but one of the things that the, the the big challenge is the polarization, particularly the racial polarization that Trump um, creates. Uh, uh, it it is you know his, his he he you know he he preys on people's fears. He makes them anxious, angry, pits them against each other, and in that polarized uh, uh, environment. Uh, the South becomes very, very tough. I mean, so we won in 2017. This is a year after Trump was, you know, he won in 2016. We won a year out because as much as he had polarized things, it wasn't it wasn't the way it is today or even two years later. So by um, 2020, I guess it was, yeah, the polarization that he had now, I mean, he, three years of him banging that that divisiveness and really driving people apart, uh, whether uh, uh, it, it, it made it impossible for even Doug Jones to bridge the divide that Trump had created. So, um, but I think that makes it even more incumbent for us all in Southern states to work together to build a stronger Democratic Party, um, to bring, and part of that is welcoming some of the Republicans that are leaving that party because of Trump, and and make the the Democratic Party a big a big tent where we are we're civil and we, yeah we we may not all get our way but we can work together we can at least negotiate and compromise with each other because you can't compromise with the polarized Republican Party, so. Um, uh, but I also think, yeah, the, the part of the problem is money has become everything in politics, um, and uh, we've got to find ways to invest in a, in 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 uh, building a stronger campaign structure for for our candidates in the South, and that that means uh, I think trying to get the, the 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 state and national party to to get that investing locally. It, building a party again from the ground up um, that we all are part of making uh, is something we need to do. And and I totally agree with the assessment. I, I made reference to my Senate campaign in 08. Um, fortunately for me, Howard Dean was the national chairman. And, you know, he invested in every state committee. Yep. And, uh, and, and so there was an infrastructure there for me to run in at the local level. And, uh, you know, they, they were, they were like my staff for, you know, because of lack of money. And it's just really, really important. You know, I remember that because Vivian um, figures was running in Alabama at the same time. And the Alabama folks had come over to meet with me and I was like going, but you've got a candidate. And they were like, well, she can't win. I said, well, if she can't win, I can't win. See, we're all in this yeah. thing together. And uh, I'll never forget that. I mean, we were in Oxford. And then they got back and did what they could for her, you know. So I, I, I definitely understand that assessment. And it's just vital for us to compete in every state. But, well, yes, you know sir. what part of that 
So yeah, Dean had the 50 state strategy, which was you know party that invested all 50 states. And the problem has become like if you look at this next presidential election, 2024, it's going to be decided in like six states. You know, California, Trump's uh, Trump's not going to get the electoral college votes there. You know, Biden will. Um, Alabama, Biden ain't going to get the 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 so no one's going to the Democrat party's not going to spend any money in Alabama in 2024. I mean, it, it just the the mindset. No, we got to win Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia. You, you know, the five the the usual suspects. And of course, the Republican Party will be thinking the same thing. They got to win those places. So both parties will spend a ton of money and and invest big time in those states. And the the Democrats, we can't keep doing that. I mean, we're it's whittling down, whittling down. We have to expand, uh, um, particularly with the way the Democrat demographics in the South are are, are rapidly changing and making it possible over time. Uh, for those states to be competitive, we, if we actually uh, invested, helped candidates like you at the time, you know, I mean, the, the, a bigger strategy than like, hey, we're, we've got it's a presidential year, so we're going to put a lot of money in six places, and um, it's like now we're we're even you know pulling out of Iowa um, in terms of you, you know which was a state that was competitive, but if we don't hold caucuses or anything there, then. How long would it be till that party? Um, I think that party always always benefited from being the first party, first state, because then all you had all these Democratic candidates running around building. The, you know, the, even their volunteers would be left to to build a, a you know work in a governor's race or a house race in 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 Iowa. Um, there's a consequence to saying, no, we're not we we're not going to play there this year. And there's no. This is the first time that I can remember in my, you know, all the times I've done, worked in presidential elections where we didn't really do much to build the volunteer base and strengthen the party in in Iowa, and that could have that could hurt Biden now, and uh, you know, in our, our our House candidates because you know we didn't we don't have a, a real activist base that uh, that that's been energized by you know, all the campaigns that would have been there this year. So I, th- I think that's definitely the case that happened in the, in the South that we have to, we have to rebuild. You have been an innovator when it comes to using technology in campaigns. The first in-house computer when Bradley in 82 ran for governor of California, first 1-800 number when Jerry Brown ran for president in 1992, and the online technology employed in Howard Dean's 20, I mean, 2004 presidential run. The New Republic even said you were the man who reinvented campaigning. Why was the use of technology so important to you as a political strategist? You know, I had always, you know, again, I was this, like I said earlier, I was an aeronautical engineering major. I actually, you know, had an understanding of technology, you, you know, and also that San Jose State, Silicon Valley. So it's like, you know, we were, you know, I was in immersed in that. And the the thing that always drove me crazy about television, which was the big thing everybody was, you know, big TV commercial, we still spend zillions of dollars on TV commercials, is that it was a one-way thing. In other words, like I had worked for Iola Williams knocking on doors. I was talking to people. We were we were having a conversation. I could I could hear what they were saying to me, you know, what they thought the problem was. 
and, you know, and then go back to her or, or whoever I was working for and say, hey, if people are really upset about this or they really need help about. It. And then, you know, the TV doesn't do that. TV is like just, you know, you just it's just one way. And you're, you know, it's it, you're banging people over the head with a hammer, with an electronic hammer saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and so I was always looking for a way to interact. And that's how the 800 number happened, which was the only way I could think of how do I at least get people out there to, to, to respond. And, and we get to at least know who liked what we said. Now we can start calling them back and talking or whatever, right? Um, so that was 90 two um and by the way that was the height of technology back then i mean that's right you know there were the internet was just that didn't you know wasn't happening yet not enough people on it but by um by 2004 um i realized that this this thing called the internet wow now we could build a real connection with our with our supporters so we you know, we 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 a lot of the stuff that you see out there today, like like we built a thing that was it was called Dean TV. We didn't know it was going to be that somebody would go to a bunch of venture capitalists and, and fund YouTube, which was kind of what we had built inside the Dean campaign, where hundreds of thousands of people would share videos and uh, and we could post uh, uh, uh shows that Howard Dean uh, spoke in or that I was conducting as campaign manager. Um, you know, the smartphone, the iPhone doesn't come wrong till 2007. Um, so we didn't have that back with Dean. But you took what the Obama campaign was able to do was take all the toolkit that we had built in the Dean campaign, add in some new stuff, sprinkle in some new stuff that we didn't even it didn't even exist when we were when we were running with Howard Dean. And, you know, without all that, I don't think he defeats Hillary Clinton. You know, the establishment was with Hillary. This was, you know, Howard Dean put big scare into the Democratic establishment. You know, they had their candidate. They knew who they wanted. And we scared the living daylights out and we lost, but we scared the daylights out of them. Then like I said, I think the Obama campaign understood the power of what we had started, also understood the new things. Like Will I Am in that video uh, uh, that they made, that couldn't have been done in, uh, in, in the Dean campaign. I mean, there, there'd be just the difference. There's nobody be, would have shared it on a, on a phone and stuff. So they, they really um, uh, upped the game. And then I think it's pretty much all gone hill down, all downhill since then, because I think the Democratic Party writ large learned pretty much one thing. And um, and that was, hey, this Internet stuff that, that those guys all started uh, is really cool. You can raise money by sending emails to people um, where the Republican Party who gets all this big billionaire money, realized, hey, that stuff's really cool, and we could actually engage directly with people, which is what I was trying to do. Um, and one day I woke up. So in the Dean campaign, we had the blog for America. It was our, it was our, you could, Howard Dean would post something in the morning, 650,000 people would gather on that blog and comment. 
and I would say, hey, Frank, that's a great idea. Uh, uh, That's a great idea. And Howard's going to may use that in a speech tonight. And then Howard go do it. And the whole community, all those 650, knew we were listening. This was us and them engaging. They owned part of the campaign. It was in 2016. No one did that. Even Obama's campaign did not do that. They did not do anything like that. Engage not that way. That's not how they engage. Email, email, email. Um, and then in 2016, I wake up one day, and there's this thing called Twitter, and there's this guy named Donald Trump with 17 million people following him, and I realized that was the Dean blog. If Twitter had become Donald Trump's personal blog, personal way to, and he was doing the same thing. Hey, Frank, you know, and, and it, I, I, I was like, you know, it, it astonished me to this day that the only campaign since Dean to actually get, or the, the only, you know, to actually get the power and it's look how powerful it is. Cause this guy has totally, you know, totally restructured the Republican Party. I mean, taking it over. And it, and they're, why are they afraid of? They're afraid of those people. He has so glued those people in that, with that engagement that all these senators, all these members, they're afraid that he's going to tell them, don't vote for that guy. So they got to they gotta do what he says. And um, I never... I always thought back then I had a sort of utopian, this is going to really serve democracy. It's going to, we're going to have a community where we can all engage together. Uh, I never saw this side of it coming, a demagogue, uh, uh, a, a, you know, a, a dictator wannabe um, who so got that direct ability of the internet to connect with people and used it, um, it uh, in, in the way he did. Um, it's almost that sometimes I like I, I, when they say, you know, you, the guy who reinvented campaigning, I think, oh, please, God, don't don't blame me. <laughs> I understand. So I, I think you kind of answered my next question. And how would you grade Biden's use of social media compared to Trump? Um, I guess, you know, what, what would you what would you suggest to them that they needed to do? to because to, you know when I found out that Donald Trump was on Twitch right you know because yeah. my, my son was is a big gamer and so it was like yeah I saw Donald Trump ad on 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 Twitch I was like what and you yeah. know so how would you how would you approach them and say hey guys look we we need to step up our game against this guy what what would you say I'd, I'd say that's exactly right. I'd say it's the same thing as abandoning uh, uh, Democratic uh, candidates in the South. You, it, it, it's another thing where they they got what was really important, and you know that's why you have Breitbart and Alex Jones and all these they zillions of these different kind of channels that the right wing nuts can all tune into and, and, and you know and pick up. It's not just Fox. It's a it's a gigantic network of of online, um, uh, you know, news sites and websites and and talking heads and everything. And we never built anything like that. 
on our side. I mean, as a party or as a as a pro democracy movement, uh, uh, you know. So they've got all these disinfo sites, and there's no and and the mainstream media plays the both sides thing. Well, you know, Obama says this or Biden says this, but Trump says that. They don't say who's right. They just say he said this, he said that, and and. and but the other side is waking up every day with all the, with this entire infrastructure that they built saying you know he's too old he Biden's laptop whatever you know they just they, they and they bang it bang it bang it you know what happened with Obama with his birth certificate right you know Trump starts saying hey and the the online stuff on the right starts saying he wasn't born here we all roll our eyes we all we all roll our eyes and say hey Oh God, no one's going to believe that. A couple years of that with no response, and guess what? You got to show them your birth certificate, and even then they say, "Oh, it's fake. It's a forgery," because they can. They've got that network. They can spread that. We never built it, so it's not Biden's fault. This is what I'm saying. It was a. We we I think we all on our side saw saw the utopia. I mean, how it could really be a great thing. And how we it would bring us all together, and never saw the networks that they were building, even the white part, the ones that you could visibly, you, you know, uh, uh, see online. Um, it, you know, there is. We're tell me where the what what the, you, you know, what the pro democracy Breitbart is on on the internet. We don't have one. In other words, so so Biden's gang, his team now is getting actually really. Last few months, they've been on it on social media. You can. That's Twitter account or X account guy. Anyway, is is uh there is just really really good, but the the amplification of zillions of people, you know, a Breitbart or a Drudge or you know all the different that amplify that social media. We never built it. We're just starting now. I mean, in a lot of ways, things like the Lincoln Project, um, Midas Touch, uh, the Bulwark. I mean, some of them are. And other sites, I'm just rattling off, are kind of like, okay, well, if no one else is going to take this stuff on social media, you know, we'll do it. Um, but the party, the DNC, um, uh, and, and, and building, you know, our own, I don't want to say, their stuff is, these are all propaganda networks that they've built. And that's the other problem, because we won't build a propaganda network. I mean, you know, you know, well, shoot, propaganda. Joe, why do you want to start a propaganda network? Right. But we didn't start a truth one either. You know, I mean, something I'm not talking about. But and so I just think it's really interesting how the technology doesn't know the culprit or the hero who's using it. And they're better at the bad, the dark side than we are. Because we won't use a lot of the dark arts, we're not. Uh, we just aren't inclined to to sick phony bots on. Uh, it's it, for them. This is like, you know, uh, it's second nature, and um, and they went right to work on how to build it. And I, I luckily for us, um, I think we're we're coming online. I think the Biden campaign's getting better. But man, we got a lot of ground to make up, just like we do have, just like the ground we got to make up in the South. It'll take time, but hopefully enough, we're making enough inroads to, to win again in 2024. That's what I, 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 I think uh, 
will will defeat Trump in in 2024. But it, it will be because just enough stuff is happening now that uh, and and enough people have tuned in um, to the stakes that that I think uh, the country will preserve democracy and and keep uh, and keep trying to become the more perfect union that we still have failed to become. All right, and. I got a I got a couple more questions because I, I really was fascinated about this particular finding out this nugget about you. In 2008, you helped move the movement for democratic change challenge Mugabe's Mugabe's uh, Zimbabwe African National Union. What takeaways from that election can prove helpful in the upcoming 2024 election? <clears throat> oh man, it was. Totally from the ground up. I mean, we won. Uh, it, then Mugabe held a press conference and said, well, you didn't win by enough. Uh, we have to have a runoff, which I always thought was fascinating because there were only two candidates. You right. know, we, we beat, but you got you didn't win by enough. We got to do it over. Um, uh, which actually does have something to do with 2024, because I think we got to beat Trump, you know, by a bigger, as big a margin as we possibly can. We got to crush uh, I mean, the only way a party or a country like that, the only way you can win, you know, kind of the destroy the dark side, it's not by beating them by, and we've seen this, not by beating them by 14,000 votes in Arizona, uh, you, you know, or whatever. It, they always think, well, we, we'll get, we'll, no, we got to get, we got to work harder and we'll, and we'll be able to take the country over next time. Um, so, you, you, it's got to be, we all have to, the pro-democracy side has to be unified. It has to be rise up from the ground, and, you know, and actually vote. You actually get there. We got to get everybody there. There's hell of a lot more people that are for democracy in this country than are for Trump and ending our democracy. So we just have to make sure that we win by a big enough margin that Trump can't sit there and like Mugabe did and say, hey, you won. Well, he won't ever say that. <laughs> he won't ever admit it. But, you know, where it's unquestionable, where it's clear, um, because that's the only way the Republican Party, I don't even know if it can be saved, but the only way it can change and move away from him is if they get finally that, you know what, we lost in 2020. We didn't see a red wave in 2022. We just got crushed in 2024. We got to like drop this guy and what he's trying to do. Um, so I think the bigger thing is to is to to really double down on our efforts um, in Zimbabwe. You know, Zim, Zimbabwe only had 13 percent Internet penetration that year. Only 13 percent of the people had the Internet. But we were able to put flyers on a website so that they could down uh, people who did have the internet and did have a printer could download them and print them and take them and give them to others in their neighborhood or in their, in their, uh, uh, you know, in, in their little town or village and, um, and spread, spread the word. That's how we, we won. It wasn't, there was no TV, the state owned TV. Right. There was no television. He was on TV telling everything. So I, that's what I'm saying here. I think where we need to um, have a campaign 
that does things like that. I mean, that gets down to where anybody in any neighborhood in this country can, can you, you know, you may not be the guy in your neighborhood who has a, a computer and a printer, but there is somebody in the camp and they know that the campaign just put out this thing and that's what we want you to tell your neighbors this week. And we do that and we and I think that's how we we rally uh, enough Americans to, to push Trump out and, and, and to, to get the kind of defeat that, that we win uh, that, that we need to kind of put this way. Otherwise, we could be doing this for a decade. I mean, where they're always on the there. These people are not going away. I mean, I mean, the, the people he has fomented and, and created this this like just hubris about uh, it, this is their country, damn it, and we, you, we're not going to let you take it. Well, that's going to be there. If he dropped tomorrow, there would be, there are going to be plenty of those people out there. You know, 18%, this is a crazy number, 18% of Americans now believe that Taylor Swift <laughs> is part of a, is part of a conspiracy with the NFL to to reelect Joe Biden. Now, how, how's that? Ha- it is happening on the web. It's ha- happening in these websites in this network. My guess is we'll all laugh and ignore it, like his birth certificate thing. And I guarantee you, in about a month, you and I are going to be we, we'd be talking about now now. 26% of the American people think that Taylor Swift is part of a sci- psychological operation, secret, you know, handshake thing to with the NFL to help uh, Joe Biden get reelected. Um, that's how that what I'm saying is that machine isn't going away. We have to develop the muscle memory, the the old style printing press, whatever, you know, and use the Internet and the tools and and the tops of our campaigns uh, and our party needs to understand that that's where this thing is being fought now. That's why people, you go, how could he, the economy be the way it is? And and his numbers are so damn bad on the economy. Look at the jobs and everything. It's because every day people are getting hammered with. They're still being told gas prices are six dollars, you know, a gallon. I mean, like on this on their sites that they go visit. None of them. Not one of them, like Fox yesterday, uh, did not mention at all uh, any of the trial stuff with, that's going on with, with Trump. I mean, it's just not happening. They don't know that he's got 91 felony counts against him. Because in that world, in their website world, that they've all these networks that they've created, no one ever says that to them. They all talk about Biden's old, the Democrats are socialists. Um, and they're going to try. They're 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 going to get rid of the dollar. So you better buy gold. I mean, you know, whatever the the conspiracy is to make people afra- be very afraid about the future. World War Three is coming, and you know, it's it's that it, it, we we are not we are not batting that stuff back because we're not even in. As I said, we would never start a propaganda network capable of doing that. So you've basically been a strategist for progressive candidates and causes throughout your career. Why did you decide to get involved with the Lincoln Project? Uh, it really simple. Look, I worked for Jerry Brown. I worked for Doug Jones, obviously. You know, uh, gosh, the Kennedy 
Mondale, Dean, you know, you, you, you know, all, all through the years. Uh, and I realize Democrats don't really understand how to communicate with these people. I mean, with the, the with the center right, I'm not talking about the far right. I'm talking about the center right that's struggling every day because they're worried. They can't believe what's happening with the far right. But at the same time, they've been conditioned over the last 10 years for maybe three decades. But I'm talking about the ones that 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 Democrats are the demons, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, literally injecting poison into the system. Um, and I realized the guys when, you know, in 2020, the, the people who understood the kind of strength you've got to punch back with, uh, uh, you know, the, there aren't many in the democratic party who understand that that's what a lot of the, um, conservatism is about sort of strong top to bottom. You take your orders from the top. I mean, that's the way the, the, the conservative movement thinks. Well, and, you know, we're kind of like, hey, I want I want to hear everybody's voice. Then we're going to decide together how we're going to change something. No, they're used to this is where we're going. And, you know, we're going to take the hill. The, the Lincoln Project guys get that. And that's why I think they're so good at, 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 at getting in Trump's head, messing with him uh, and and how to get how to move some of these movable Republicans to think about voting for democracy, for Biden, for Democrats, because, you know, because that's the only way to save democracy right now. Um, and I decided, look, man, I'm going to go. I want to join them and see if I can get more progressives, more uh, Democrats to to, to focus on what they're doing and their style, because I think that is how it's not propaganda. I mean, their stuff is straight at them with real facts, sometimes funny, making fun of them, of Trump. But it's for real. There's no like made up stuff. Right. With the other side's doing the same thing. But it's you know, it's all phony. Um, and so I, I think most more of us need to learn from groups like there's there's others too, but I'm just saying that's the one I thought that was the most effective in 2020. I think they understand they ha- we have this thing called the Bannon line voters. So Steve Bannon back in 2020 said that in their polling they showed that there were three to six percent of of Republican voters who could defect and vote for Biden. Uh, and so internally in the in the uh, in the Lincoln Project, we named those that we called that the Bannon line. We were going <laughs> to go after the six points. You know, we were we were going to target the Bannon line and move them. And that's what they did in 2020. That's I mean, you can't say, well, that's what made up the 14000 votes in Arizona or whatever. But I'm saying that's what the that was the whole strategy. I think we as a part, we as pro-democracy, forget about parties right now, it's about putting um, uh, country over party. Um, we can learn a lot from the, the way they conduct the, their campaign. We don't have to do it all that way, but I think we can learn a lot from adding in some of those tactics to how you fight back this, this disinformation and the autocrats that, that Trump is trying to lead to let him take over the country. 
So I think you kind of answered my last question because you've, you've been involved in politics for nearly 50 years and most people would be burned out. And I was going to ask you what's motivating you to stay engaged, but just this interview, I think answered that question. So I, I want to just thank you for staying engaged. And I thank you for the enthusiasm that you, the fire that you still have uh, to save this democracy. Um, if people want to get involved with stuff that you're doing, um, how can they get in touch with you and just highlight what you want people to focus on? Well, you can you can always follow me on Twitter or X at Joe Trippi, uh, J-O-E-T-R-I-P-P-I. Um, also, we have a there's a thing. Resolute Square dot com uh, is a site where you can find a lot of the stuff I wrote or my podcast. And I have a podcast too, that Trippy Show. So if you if you if you were interested, found this interesting, you may want to go uh, uh, where you find this podcast. Look for that Trippy Show, and uh, you can hear. You know, I I do more about you know like okay, so South Carolina's coming up. You, you know, as a campaign manager, what do I see? What's the poll telling me? What to ignore in the poll? Uh, and what I would do, you know, and sort of it's actually kind of interesting because um, so far, I've, you know, I, I've been able to look forward into a state and I've come pretty close. I did say I thought Nikki Haley would win in New Hampshire, but but I said she put a scare in him and she might just win. But, you know, and I gave all my reasons. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff as well as the kinds of things you and I just talked about, uh, people should go to that trippy show. Well, Joe trippy, it's been an honor to sit down and talk with you, man. Um, been a fan for a long time. And, um, uh, just to be able to have a venue where we could have a conversation. I'm greatly honored to have you on. So thank you for coming. Same here. Uh, it was an honor to be on. Yes, sir. All right, guys. And we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So, in closing, what a tremendous show. Uh, I am really honored to have had Ms. Christina Correga, Sharon Kyle, and Jill Trippi come on this show and grace my presence and our presence uh, on this podcast. And I hope that you were not only entertained by some of their stories, but you were enlightened by their interviews. Um, again, guys, I appreciate y'all appreciate your support. Appreciate y'all listening. And, um, until next time.